From screening for chromosomal abnormalities to finding out the gender, non-invasive prenatal testing has become popular with expected parents for a variety of reasons. In this episode, we chat to Dr. Samantha Doyle, consultant clinical and biochemical geneticist at the National Maternity Hospital, to find out more about how genetic testing works. Samantha, do you want to tell us a little bit about the work that you do at the National Maternity Hospital? Yes, so um, I work at the National Maternity Hospital as a perinatal genomicist and I'm the only person practising in the area currently in Ireland um, providing care to the patients attending the National Maternity Hospital and the role is quite broad so some of the patients will see me because they are at risk um, of having a baby with a genetic condition because perhaps they've had a baby affected in the past or there's a family history of something and they want to understand because of something that's there in a relative if they are at risk of passing something on to their baby. I'm also then involved in people who attend the hospital and have abnormalities detected in their baby in the pregnancy on the scan and they're trying to understand the questions that everybody asks in that scenario. What is it? Why has it happened? Will it happen again? And what what will life be like for my baby? Is your child restless this winter? If so, then try using a soothing Calpol vapour plug and nightlight, an electrical plug-in device that emits lavender and chamomile vapours to soothe and comfort babies and children, helping to promote clear and easy breathing for up to eight hours. The Calpol night vapour plug and nightlight is suitable for children from three months. Calpol vapour plug and nightlight is an electrical device and non-medicine. Always read the label. And sometimes when a collection of signs are seen on a scan, it's difficult to give people that answer. But when we can make a definitive genetic diagnosis and outline the natural history of that particular condition to the couple in the context of a pregnancy, that allows them to prepare for the rest of the pregnancy with their baby, for the delivery of their baby. And it also allows them to decide, you know, what they want to do about that genetic diagnosis. And also with that genetic diagnosis, it answers the questions very often about is it likely to happen again, which is very often a major concern for somebody where their little baby is very sick. They know their baby will be facing multiple operations, procedures that will be very difficult. Will they be able to have a healthy baby in the future? And with a genetic diagnosis, it allows them to have that information there at that time. So that's a very big part of my job. And then preparing people for a subsequent pregnancy, which if they've lost a baby is very difficult. And there's a lot of demands on them emotionally entering into another pregnancy as a couple. And some people deal with that in different ways. So we do have a therapist working with us at the National Maternity Hospital who helps people in that scenario because the next pregnancy will never be the way the previous pregnancy started, which was relatively carefree for most people. They will always have the shadow of their loss or their very ill baby and that will overshadow every subsequent pregnancy. So it becomes about helping them to realise perhaps the risk is low or maybe the risk is high, but what can be done? What testing can be done in a pregnancy? How early can it be done? And the area of perinatal genomics has expanded so much in the last, and it's really only in the last decade, where we can test for things very early in a pregnancy without ever putting a needle near the woman's uterus. So we can extract free fetal DNA from the maternal serum 
from nine weeks in pregnancy have a result back within days to say where the ba- whether the baby is or isn't affected. And that then allows people to enjoy that pregnancy, to know this baby's okay and I can relax. Um, and then for some people where the risk might be higher, my role involves helping them understand the options they have. They may decide to go down the route of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which involves IVF um, and a biopsy of the embryo at day five of um, the, the blastocyst stage and a genetic test to be performed on the embryo and healthy embryos to be implanted. People enter into those pregnancies knowing that the baby's not affected by the condition that was you know, such a major impact on their other child's life. And what are those kind of conditions? Like, is it cystic fibrosis or are there kind of like very rare genetic conditions? Because I think genes are, you know, they're so complex, but, and we, we use the term genes so flippantly, mm-hmm. but, you know, and, is, and and even this is what I'm kind of interested in. Is it, is it that, is it an unfortunate pairing of two sets of genes that create the abnormality or is it kind of carried by one parent? Like, or is it both? Or is that basically the most complex question that <laughs> yeah. cannot be answered? You've no idea the complexity of <laughs> yeah. that question. So we could talk for an hour just trying to answer that alone. And that is the question parents ask. Is it both of us coming yeah. together? Is it something I carry? Is it something neither of us carry? And getting to the bottom of that sometimes is more difficult um, and sometimes not possible. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. We talk about genes and even in the hospital, people throw the terms genes and chromosomes around. Mm. sometimes even interchangeably but when we talk about genetic testing in general we're talking about looking at the cells of the fetus and we know that the fetus is made up of millions and millions of cells at the centre of the cell is the nucleus and the genetic material in the nucleus is found on the baby's chromosomes so the baby's expected to have 46 chromosomes 23 pairs one copy from mum one copy from dad the 23rd pair are the sex chromosomes which decide if the baby will be a boy or a girl but sitting on those chromosomes are the genes and the genes we know we've got 23,000 of them so a huge number so when you talk about cystic fibrosis we're talking about CFTR which is one out of those 23,000 genes and that's a relatively common genetic disorder in the Irish population we see a lot of it and we know that around 1 in 19 people carry an abnormality on their cystic fibrosis gene which is huge it's very common it's very very common in white Irish people you're fine to be a carrier of something and we're all carriers of seven or eight genetic recessive conditions. The only issue comes if you have a baby with someone who's a carrier of the same condition. So with cystic fibrosis, if you look at a class of junior infants and there are 60 people in the class, at least three of those will be carriers of cystic fibrosis. And if two of those have a baby together, they have a one in four chance, 25% of their baby being affected by cystic fibrosis. Now that's a three in four chance for that couple that the baby will be okay. We do highlight that to people as well because this receiving this news is very scary. They're more likely to have a healthy baby than not, but still 25%, one in four is a high risk. 
My job involves looking after people with those more common genetic conditions, but also diagnosing very rare genetic conditions in pregnancy where perhaps the baby presents on a scan with an abnormality of the brain or the kidneys. And we're saying, well, this could be one of 150 things. What is it? Um, it might be chromosomal. So the first step is always, well, let's look at the baby's chromosomes. To do that, though, we need to do an invasive test in pregnancy. So the invasive test can take place from around 11 weeks where we take a sample from the placenta or the chorion. Um, and then from 15 weeks where we take a sample of fluid from around the baby called an amniocentesis. And from both of those samples, we extract the fetal DNA. And that goes to a laboratory in the UK. And they then will look at submicroscopic detail all of the 46 chromosomes to see if there are any areas deleted or duplicated which might be causing the problems the baby has. If we don't get an answer, in some scenarios we will go on then and say, well, we know we've got 23,000 genes and we haven't looked in detail at them. And we now in pregnancy have the ability to sequence the genetic code or the spelling of the genetic code in those 23,000 genes and focus in on the specific genes that cause problems with the brain and the kidney, talking about the case that we're using as an example, to try and identify why the baby looks so unwell on the scan. Previously, that type of testing took months and months, you know. So, you know, if you go back five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, we would have been saying to parents with a child, this test might take a year to have a result. So the baby okay. would be born. Well obviously. born. But now with advances in technology and advances in our ability to understand the genes and read the sequence of the genes, in the National Maternity Hospital, women in that scenario have the opportunity to undergo what's known as trio exome sequencing, where the DNA of the mother and the father and the fetus is sequenced at the same time, and we can return a result within 14 calendar days. So in the setting of a pregnancy, we have cases where an abnormality is detected at 20 weeks. And by 23 weeks, we have a case recently where we made a diagnosis in the baby. And that baby's one of 17 um, with that condition in the world. And the first ever diagnosed in a pregnancy. And that is huge for a couple to have the answer. Unfortunately, both parents were carriers. So this means that they have a one in four chance of having another baby affected. The baby will be very sick when it's born and the baby unfortunately is going to be born with a life-limiting condition and we know will only live probably up to about age five mm. but we can put all the plans in place and we can maximize the care from from delivery right through and the parents are prepared it also allows the team, with me being involved in that team, to reach out to experts around the world, the people who have found the gene, identified it as causing this disease, to see is the research ongoing, are there any opportunities, is there any additional information out there, even before the baby is born. So that's, that's a real paradigm shift mm. in maternity care now. And that technology has been available in the UK for a couple of years, and I was involved in rolling that out. Um, and have come back to the National Maternity Hospital just since last August and literally within two hours of being in the building we had offered the test to the first Irish patient. Oh. So it makes a big difference mm, to people. Yeah. I think this is the 
the big thing though like pregnancy is so unknown and it's um well sorry for the for the, the couple or the pregnant woman especially if it's your first pregnancy everything's new there's so many uncertainties you know you're trying to get to 12 weeks and you're like waiting for the 20 week scan you know there's kind of like nearly milestones that you want to or markers that you're like desperately wanting to to hit or reach um and you know I think once you you reach you get past 12 weeks you kind of think like okay now I'm this is a healthy safe pregnancy I can tell people you know you're you you kind of think these things you presume it then when you get to 20 weeks you're kind of like hoping that all that but I suppose genetic testing at an earlier stage it allows couples I suppose some reassurance maybe um for my first pregnancy, I actually got pregnant when I was living in America. So my um, OBGYN, as they're called there, mm-hmm. told me to, when I returned to Ireland, because the plan was that I was going to be going back to Ireland even before I hit um, 12 weeks to get a nuchal fold test. And I'd obviously never heard of it. And I had to get it privately here because it's not offered as standard. And why did they advise that? It's just like a standard test they do in the States. Okay. Um, and then it obviously detects... Uh, kind of chromosomal is that the right term disorders like down syndrome um and then uh with my second pregnancy because I'd already had that I was kind of I suppose more in tune to genetic testing so I opted for one of the non-invasive tests that is I suppose more comprehensive um and it also tells you the sex of the the baby which is like I'm I wanted to know with both my pregnancies and like I have to say Mm -hmm. that was one of the main (laughs) motivations um so that I didn't have to wait for 20 weeks um but I suppose I got both done and we kind of talked a little bit about this before we went on air or came on air I was getting these tests done but I had no conversation about what I was going to do had the tests come back with results that needed further explanation or exploration um and that's standard that that when you get these tests done, you're not really given an option um, as to what you're going to do with the results afterwards. Yeah, th- there's a lot again in what you've just said. Sorry, I think. And to, I, to and go I, on. No, but <laughs> I think it's actually incredibly important because the sentiments that you've sort of eloquently described there, this want for the baby to be okay, the want to know that the baby is okay. And I think every woman feels that. And the 12 week is definitely a milestone because we know that about one in three pregnancies will actually end in a miscarriage. So once you get to 12 weeks and you haven't miscarried, you're thinking, "Okay, I'm getting closer to a little car seat, which I always think symbolizes so much for people who don't get to take a baby home. And you're right, it is a big milestone. And on the way, it would be nice to know even before the 12 weeks that this baby looks all right. In some countries, there are national screening programs and there are various options for that. Uh, The first you've described is the nuchal translucency, and that's a soft marker for aneuploidy, which is essentially the fancy term for having an abnormal number of chromosomes. So we've said we should have 46, but if you have 47 and your additional chromosome is chromosome 21, well, then the baby has Down syndrome. And some of those pregnancies, unfortunately, will miscarry and others will continue and the baby will be born with Down syndrome. There are other chromosomes, though, for example, chromosome 13 and chromosome 18, 
where if the baby has an additional chromosome and it's either of those, we know that while the pregnancy may miscarry in the first trimester, it may continue on and the baby we know will die in most cases in the first few weeks of life and may have significant findings then at the 20 week scan. So it's trying to detect that earlier and make peace with the fact that the baby has this diagnosis. And so the nuchal translucency test allows, I suppose, our pregnancy to be screened and it is just a screening test and identifies that a pregnancy is at a risk, at a higher risk um, of having a chromosomal abnormality or an abnormality. And then the pregnancy is looked at differently. In the UK until recently, that was how they screened pregnancies and that was nationally funded. So they had biochemical testing um, and they used that nuchal translucency and they identified women at high risk. In Ireland, that's never been funded. So there wasn't a first trimester screening programme. And in the absence of that, what has become our first tier screening is the non-invasive prenatal screening test, which you mentioned. And that's a genetic test which is performed from depending on the company providing the test, nine weeks or 10 weeks, where a sample of your blood is taken. And we know that from the time you're pregnant, from about six weeks, your baby will start to produce fetal DNA, which enters your own bloodstream through the placenta. That fetal DNA is coming from the, the trophoblast, it's called, which is not actually the fetus, but in most cases is representative of the genetics of the fetus. Not always representative of the genetics of the fetus, though, and that's an important point, and it's a biological fact that we can't overcome with this testing, and that's the reason why it will only ever be a screening test and used to identify pregnancies which are at high risk or low risk. So when you do that test, you meet somebody to have pre-test counselling and you discuss how the test is performed and the test is part science and part statistics. So there is a risk attributed to you of having a chromosomal abnormality based on your age and that's incorporated into your result of being high or low risk. So it's not all done on the scientific analysis of the chromosomes and the tests you can have are varied. So as a geneticist, I would recommend considering and I don't say recommend the testing I say recommend considering testing of the chromosomes 13 18 and 21 we know in that scenario that there is accuracy there which makes it a very good test there are other tests available which can look at micro deletions um, on different chromosomes and rarer trisomies on other chromosomes these are less well validated and their accuracy less well based on science and certainly in some of those cases where a high risk result is returned in a lot of cases in fact the baby is not affected by the condition so you will read on those tests oh 99% sensitive 99% specific and that's true but the positive predictive value can be low for some of um, the things which are looked at. And the positive predictive value means that for every 100 times the test says the baby has the condition, if the positive predictive value is 5%, it means it's correct in 5 
out of those 100 cases. And some of the results, the positive predictive value is that low. So people get that result sent to them, sometimes a phone call, sometimes a text, sometimes an email, and they automatically think their baby has the condition. That's not necessarily the case for some of these rarer deletions and duplications. And then they have to consider going on as for any of these high-risk results. And the next step is testing in a pregnancy, invasive testing in a pregnancy. So those people will be sent on to a fetal medicine unit. Their baby will be looked at and scanned. And then a discussion will happen. Now, sometimes the results come back at 10 weeks or 10 and a half weeks. And you're told you can't have that diagnostic test until 15 weeks. Mm -hmm. So you're sitting. to be waiting. And worrying and absolutely, stressing. Yeah. Absolutely. A, a day is a long time mm. in that scenario. But if you're told, actually, we need to wait until 15 weeks to do it, I think before you have the test, you've got to ask, will I cope with that? How will I feel? Would it suit me better to to wait for the 20 week scanner will I be okay with that wait and to understand that it's not a diagnostic test it's a screening Mm -hmm. test and just because you're high risk doesn't mean your baby has that condition Um, I think that's a really important point that we need to kind of stress in that it is diagnostic and not um, and it, it isn't diagnostic it is screening so because the results that you get are you kind of get like you are one in like 350,000 um, times like likely to have this disorder so basically this this um, abnormality so like you don't get a definitive like your baby does not have any abnormalities it basically just says like the statistics are so vast or that the, the, the like you know that the you, you would like the, the likelihood I suppose is so unlikely but the tests that we're talking about are the tests that people pay for in this country and they're expensive tests so when I was um, 35 having my first baby, my only baby at the moment, um, and nobody ever mentioned to me when I was going to appointments or anything to to consider these tests, but some of my friends did, or people I know, they asked me, am I getting the Harmony, am I getting par- Panorama? And it's just like, uh, yeah, it's definitely word of mouth, so. I think, is yeah. it's more popular. And the reason I didn't really was because, well, I don't think at that stage I could have been considered at risk apart from, you know, the age factor. And also I was not going to be shelling out I don't know how much three hundred or like what is it? I think some of them are about six hundred, some about four hundred. I definitely could not afford that. Um but I I do feel for people my age, some it was it was kind of a trendy thing to do in a way. It was just like, okay, well we're this age now, um, we better do this just in case. Um so then people like me, I felt a little bit at a disadvantage that I couldn't. But then again I just had to go along with it and Well and I suppose that I didn't. I like honestly I suppose but for me coming from like, you know, like a New York like gynecologist who like was obviously incredibly like well um educated and knowledgeable she was really insistent that I have the nuchal filled or translucency test so when I was coming back then I kind of was like Ireland like we're not as advanced and and we need this and and I kind of felt nearly annoyed I was like I can't believe women are not getting this as standard and in other places around the world they are getting it as standard now obviously healthcare in America is 
like its own Pandora's box of problems. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to say that it's much better. Um, thankfully, I was fortunate enough. I had health insurance, so I had all these options available to me. Um, but yeah, I th- and you know, obviously, healthcare here is infinitely better if you don't have health insurance. Mm-hmm. But I I felt annoyed that women here like that there's not a focus maybe on on women having these free um tests when you know like if it is important like I don't know is it important or is it just something well, there that's that you've mentioned that you would recommend tests for certain people it does seem like it is important yeah and I think it, yeah I, I think it is important mm. and I think it's a very good test um for chromosomes 13 18 and 21 it's not so good for sex chromosomes and you can find the gender of the baby out without looking at the sex chromosomes and um, because we can sequence a male specific gene and tell you if it's present or not and then you know if it's a boy if it's there and it's a girl if it's and you not can do this for how many weeks Nine, nine weeks really? wow. as part of that test but what a lot of people have done is they look at the sex chromosomes and sometimes you'll get a result back saying that the baby has a sex chromosome problem and that's oh. very difficult then to know what you'll do with that because a mm. lot of those are really quite mild um, and in the setting of a pregnancy and a baby that looks perfect on scan and we're saying to you well the positive predictive value is 48% for this so we get it right 48 times out of 100 Mm -hmm. with this screening test Mm. and the other times it's actually a normal baby and it doesn't have this and even if the baby has this condition the child will probably uh, be okay and it wouldn't have come to medical attention until they were in their teens and the periods didn't start or something like that so that information is difficult information so we don't recommend looking at the sex chromosomes in that way so finding the gender out to use a different method mm-hmm. is safer I think that in other countries first trimester screening is funded I think it's very important Mm -hmm. it hasn't historically been funded in this country but hopefully in time once we start the conversation and once we realise the importance and also now I do think we're in a different climate because we do have access to termination of pregnancy that's actually what I was going to ask you next so is it because historically there there was no option for termination that, that basically there was no need to screen because you weren't able to give anyone an option. So kind of like if they're non-fatal syndromes or abnormalities, there was no kind of need for you to know about them? No, I I wouldn't say it was that calculated, but it's Mm -hmm. more... We do have a a budget in healthcare in this country Mm. and we have to look at how we spend it. And we've implemented the uh, 20 week scan so that every woman is accessing that and that is a very good test and it is a screening test as well at 20 weeks the first trimester screening is probably the next thing that needs to happen so I I think it will happen but as, as you highlighted a lot of the healthcare in this country is publicly funded, which is different to other countries. And there's pros and cons to that. Mm-hmm. And this test isn't for everybody. You know, some people, when they know it's a screening test and look what might happen when the result comes back, I, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. That's not what I want. And very often when I'm discussing testing in a pregnancy with a couple, I say, well, we're very focused on the test, but can we fast forward to the result? And what will you do with the result? And I think 
that in a lot of circumstances, when people consider that day and the result coming through high risk for, how will they feel about that and what will they do about that? And everybody is individual. And even people are different at different stages in their life about those decisions. So if you are 39, it's your first pregnancy, you've had multiple or maybe not your first pregnancy, but you've had multiple miscarriages, you know, maybe you're thinking if I have that screening test, I might then have to go on and have a needle put into my uterus, Mm. which has a risk of miscarriage of 1%. And I think I'll find that decision very difficult. I'll have my 20 week scan. But somebody who's 25, it's their first pregnancy, even though they're low risk for a trisomy, they aren't no risk. Mm -hmm. They might say, well, no, I I would like to know earlier and I do want this test. Mm -hmm. So that's the piece. And I think that's very important. And if you look at countries where they have nationalized um, this screening program and using non-invasive prenatal um, screening like the Netherlands and like Belgium, it's actually not taken up by as many people as you would think. Okay. And in Ireland, a lot of women who go for the test are privately funding it so that they're paying for it themselves. They're heavily invested. And I would say it's probably close to a third of Irish women have that non-invasive prenatal screening test. Some women will go for a first trimester scan and be happy if they know the nuchal is all right. Mm-hmm. But I did that. Um I was yeah I found out I was pregnant six weeks and I kind of couldn't believe it um so I went to get the private scan uh just to make sure that I was yeah I think 20 weeks is such a long time to wait before you see anything and I feel like as well even though if you're like experiencing morning sickness and you know everything else um it's still not tangible, you know, like mm-hmm. it's it's still happening to you. So yeah. it's very, I find it very hard to get my mind around the I fact that it, it was, you surreal. know, a baby. I couldn't yeah. believe that I was pregnant. I was yeah. just like, I couldn't believe it was happening to me. You know what I mean? Um, but so I, I did need that reassurance. I know like earlier, I, I obviously I said I didn't get the screening tests because they, I mean, for me, they were just too expensive. They're expensive. Yeah. And also the, the scan is expensive. I think mm. it was 70 euros. So no, it's not accessible to everyone. No. Um, but I was I was glad I got it, mm. and you know obviously the scan came up um, fine because a, a baby did happen in the end. Um, but I also actually got another private scan at I think fourteen weeks. I don't I, I don't really know exactly why. I think, I think it was that's really common, Miriam. Though yeah, because is, yeah. like is it? It's just to get the reassurance. I think yeah because as you were saying, twenty weeks is a very long time yeah. in the pregnancy to have your first scan. Um, and again, I think we're hitting the nail on the head like a, f- a few different ways that it it's it's reassurance. Mm. It's yeah, making and, sure. And I think there's a difference between a private scan at seven weeks and a scan at 20 weeks, which mm. will be much more detailed, a detailed anatomy scan. Yeah. So at six, seven weeks, that's a viability scan, you know, mm-hmm. so that's saying, yeah. look, at, we can see evidence that there is. Mm is a feat, you know, there is a pregnancy there and things are developing as they should. And at 14 weeks, I would imagine that's to be sure that you haven't miscarried at that point. Yeah. And it was, you know, to make sure that there was still. Yeah, exactly. Still a heartbeat. Yeah. 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 Um, But I think reassurance is actually a really interesting kind of way to look at it, because 
I think most people, and speaking from experience, I was getting the test to reassure myself, but I wasn't actually thinking about... If it's not reassuring. Exactly. And I think that that's so common. Well, people come in, well, I just had this test for reassurance. I just had this test because everybody in the office was having it. Mm -hmm. I had the test because I wanted to know if it was a boy or a girl Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to wait till 20 weeks. And actually, my job, I suppose I'm quite polarised because I don't see when it comes back low risk. I meet Mm -hmm. the people where it comes back high risk. And it's the one thing I would love if they were just a little bit more prepared in their heads entering into the test. This might not go our way. And what needs to be done after that to make the diagnosis will be difficult. We will have the information early, um, but there may be a delay in being able to have the diagnostic test. And that's for physiological, biological mm. reasons, not access to anything or any issue with healthcare. It absolutely sometimes has to be that way. Um, and how will I deal with that? Because it's not reassuring for everybody. And the thing is that Every person entering into a pregnancy, 3% of pregnancies will be affected by a major congenital abnormality. And that's a higher percentage, I think, than most women realise. Mm, And it's not a bad thing that they don't know it. Mm -hmm. But I think that the reassurance isn't there for everybody. But the early detection, especially of the chromosomal 13, 18, 21, where we do understand what's ahead and we know the test is very good for those chromosomes. Um, and, And we know the positive predictive values are high for those chromosomes. The risk that comes with a CVS or an amnio for a couple, it may seem more reasonable when the positive predictive value is up at 92% as opposed to 5 or 10% for some of the other things if you look, start looking at other chromosomes um, on extended testing. So for, for people in countries where, these, where the tests are nationally funded, they will get um, he- like help psychologically. So if we look at the Netherlands, the Netherlands has a population of about 17 million. It's a big country and they rolled this out. They did two major research studies and they looked at this testing, looking at it in the high risk group, which Mm -hmm. they classed as over 35. Um, And then they looked at implementing the test to the the entire population regardless of age and they found actually the test was very beneficial at all ages. So they've rolled it out. Um, nationally. Those women in the Netherlands, when they become pregnant, a community midwife visits them. They discuss the options for screening in the first trimester, the traditional nuchal and biochemical testing and this new non-invasive prenatal screening test. And it's a choice. It's a choice. And then if they opt to go for that, another person comes to them and they have a minimum of a 30 minute consultation with that person. And for a population of 17 million, they have about 3000 of those people to cover the population. So they have a discussion about the testing and they do a huge amount of testing. 
at an early stage in pregnancy with direct access to clinical genetics if it's required, if something comes back. But the women have the choice after the 30 minute consultation, understanding what could come out, what the results mean and what will be needed um, if a high risk result comes back to decide if they want the test or they don't. And after that, it's about 50-50. So some people say, that's for me. Other people say, that's not. And and th- that's fine then. They go back to the uh, traditional um, route of screening. But in that in that way, you would feel, I would feel supported knowing that it is kind of a, a national scheme that you do have. You are prepared in case there's bad news, I suppose. And then you do, you can make that decision yourself to to go through with the test. Um, but if you're going through it privately here, you you don't have that kind of preparedness do you um, even you've done no like well my see my result came back with everything kind of within the normal markers Mm -hmm. so there wasn't a conversation about anything further so yeah like I and and the the same with the the nuchal fold there was no um chat post procedure like post testing so yeah like I I suppose I'm coming from it from a different perspective um but Again, I don't like obviously I was waiting for the result and hoping that everything was going to come back fine. But I think I very naively did look at it as more of a diagnostic tool. Mm -hmm. Um, And even though it was statistics I was given rather than like, you know, positive or negative results or whatever, I didn't look at it that way. Which again, I think, you know, for all the information that I wanted to get at the same time, I just kind of was like, okay, box ticked, let's move on. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't want to kind of look at it too deeply um mm. and that's the scenario for most people because it comes back and it's okay mm. and it's the people where it doesn't come back okay and they go down a different route yeah um and they're linked in very quickly then they go to the hospital where they're booked to have the pregnancy and they're seen in the fetal assessment unit and they're taken down the, the path of what uh, should happen next and they have their ultrasound um and the baby is looked at and the decisions made then about what what's going to happen next and who's referred to you? So um, the referrals to me, sometimes the people with the high risk results um, will see fetal medicine. And sometimes if it's a sex chromosome finding, because the positive predictive value isn't as high as for the 13, 18 and 21 before and also the variability of how the children are affected with those conditions before couples are happy to have an invasive test where they're putting the pregnancy at the risk of miscarriage, they sometimes will speak to me. Um, And the patients who come to me in pregnancy are predominantly those where there are abnormalities on scan um, and there is concern about the baby and we need more information. So where we're going to do more intensive genetic testing. Mm -hmm. Is it ever possible, I suppose we've talked a lot about sequencing of, you know, the mum, the dad and then the baby's DNA altogether. But would you ever, would it, would it ever be possible to, to screen couples before they, yeah. but even if there's been no abnormalities detected in a previous pregnancy? Yeah, 
yeah, you can get that done. It's not publicly funded and it wouldn't be publicly funded in a lot of countries mm. in Europe. In America, they have moved hugely towards doing that. Um, I actually didn't know that. Yeah. That seems like nearly yeah. futuristic. Yeah, is this going like down the designer babies route? No, it's, well, this is the... It, it's it's an it's an ethical question, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, so what you can have done is you can have couples carrier testing where, you know, we can screen for about 400 conditions and we know that each individual will be a carrier of a few of those. Um, but if they're not in common, so if they're not carriers of the same condition, then we can reassure them that they're baby won't be affected by those conditions. We can't screen for everything. Of course we can't. But those conditions, um, they can pay to have that test done privately. And where people use that information is if it comes back that they're carriers of the same condition, they might then consider pre-implantation genetic testing. They might consider not having children, which would be very sad outcome. They might consider spontaneously conceiving with the knowledge that there is this one in four or 50-50 or it depends on if it's a boy or a girl. They understand the risks um, and then they might decide we're taking them, we're just going to continue. They might get pregnant spontaneously and have testing in a pregnancy for information purposes to know before the baby is born, to have plans to look after the baby. Some people might decide that if the baby's affected by that condition, they might interrupt the pregnancy if the baby has it because they're so worried about the baby's quality of life. And mm. um, they're really difficult decisions to make. Some people might choose to have IVF and use a donor sperm or donor egg. So everybody makes different decisions, mm. but that's to them to decide once they have all of that information. It's not common that people have that carrier testing in this country, um, but it's not unheard of and it's uh, it's available privately through, you know, private genetics, but it's definitely not something that's funded and I really don't think it'll be mm. funded any time in the near future. Does it ever diagnose things that are like non-fatal? They're just like, oh yeah, not, like not quirks, Absolutely. but you know what I mean? Like that, like if you, you, you mightn't have it, you're partner might not have it but your baby would have it but it's totally like non-fatal won't affect their quality of life is treated you know what I mean is yeah, there well, there's like loads that? of there's loads of genetic conditions which um you know cause problems but they're not significant and the majority aren't fatal so in Ireland um the section of the legislation which allows us to to sign off on a termination of pregnancy for a couple um, states that can only happen in the setting where the baby is going to die in the pregnancy or within the first 28 days of life. It's a small number of scenarios where that is the case. So the majority of genetic conditions aren't fatal in, in under that definition. Um, and a lot of the conditions that we diagnose in a pregnancy they've been significant enough for the baby to present with signs. So we've been able to make the diagnosis, but that doesn't mean that it's fatal and the majority won't be fatal. So, you know, those people then have the knowledge of the condition. They know what's required treatment-wise for their baby using international best practice. And then um, they can make the decisions about what they want for their family. So so even though this... Um the eighth has been repealed and I mean that's what we're talking about mm. there are scenarios where awful scenarios for parents to be 
that they will still have to leave the country to have yeah. a, a termination. Yeah. Yes, yes. And and it's a it's a large number of scenarios, actually, where people are still traveling to the UK and scenarios where we are giving news that the condition that their baby has is very, very significant. Um, some of them where we are telling people their babies may never walk, they will never talk, they will never feed, they are likely to have very severe um, epilepsy maybe, and um, that will be difficult to treat, where we're describing a really sad quality of life for the baby and also for the family, and they don't meet criteria um, to have a termination of pregnancy in this country. Even though medically in another country they would? Yeah, well the legislation is different okay. here. Okay. So we have to act under our legislation. So in that scenario, we give the information and we support the couples and we look after them. And some of them do continue with the pregnancy and we make sure that everything is set up so that the life is as good as it can be. Um, but some people decide to travel to the UK and then when they come back, the discussion will be about if this might happen again and what options the couples and that's a journey and it's a really difficult journey and the timing of the discussions is so important um, and every couple is unique and they guide us as to when they're ready for the next step but now because of the technology that's available testing in pregnancy at the national maternity hospital these people have access to that information and they, in a situation where they feel so powerless, so isolated and devastated, at least they're not asking, why did this happen? And that's always, why did this happen? Was it me? Did I do something wrong? That's the guilt, isn't it? Yeah. You constantly yeah. have a, a feeling of like anything that goes wrong with your kids or, you know, you, 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 you're the first point to blame is yourself. Mm. Um, and that can be from anything from like feeding to, you know, I suppose further down the line. Um, and, and a genetic diagnosis can be difficult for people in that regard. And the communication of it is very important because if the parents are carriers of something, very I did this, we did this and they didn't. Yeah. But they do feel that way, so they need a huge amount of support and the, the communication is so important. Yeah. And that support is offered. It is, yeah. of course so it is, yeah. So that's, yeah. I mean, that is reassurance in itself that if something does happen that, you know, the worst can, that can happen, you will have that support and um, plan in place, that, as you were saying, yeah. for the pregnancy and for... The future. The future, yeah. Yeah. But I think, future. like, knowledge is power and I think yeah. to have the ability to equip parents with this information and this knowledge is so important rather than just letting people naively continue um in pregnancies without that information and then the inevitable support that they need um so i think it is funny yeah, like the, the whole designer baby argument is obviously it's very polarizing and i think it's kind of extreme and that you know people are going to start thinking you're going to be able to choose like the eye color and you yeah. know if they like sport and <laughs> stuff like that but it's well that will that will never happen yeah. in my opinion so it's our if we're talking about that concept of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis um there are two centers providing that in Ireland one in Cork one in Sandyford and 
they send the embryo biopsies across to the UK and the UK are following the HFEA guidelines, which is the Human Fertility Embryology Authority. And that organisation is extremely strict about what they will give a licence for. So to perform PGD for a particular genetic condition, a licence has to be available for that condition. And it's a rigorous process um, that a clinician has to go through to get a license for a genetic condition. So they look at the severity of the condition. They look at the impact, is it gender specific? Um, and they look at the appropriateness of performing um, embryo testing in the first place for that particular condition. So if it's a very mild genetic condition, that's you know n- not likely to cause anything very serious. And there are genetic conditions that aren't very serious. Um, a license just will not be approved and it won't be possible to do it. Because it's not necessary. It's not necessary. Yeah. Uh, so blue eyes is is not a disease. So, <laughs> you know, um, so I, I just don't think it would get through that. And we don't have legislation at the moment in Ireland um, for this, but it is it's being worked on and I'm very confident that we will have legislation around this and a group set up where we'll be licensing our own genetic conditions in the future. It is amazing to think about what can be done now that wasn't done, like that couldn't be done, as you like say earlier saying 10 years or even five years ago. All of these um, advances, science is amazing, you know, we're so lucky that this is happening of course it's going to conjure up a few ethical questions like i'm just thinking now in the future if you meet someone you really really like um even before you commit to marriage just say or even like moving in together do you oh, like a like um a prenup would it yeah. be like a pre-gen but yeah do, do you do a pre-gen and just and see if you're compatible and then i have to say like i like this you're probably gleaning this from the conversation i actually am so nosy and i love knowing things so like me doing like the pre-genetic or pre uh testing was like partly gender-based i was like i really want to know what i'm having mm-hmm. um and yeah i think if i met someone and you could go off and get a pre-gen i'd be like first in line <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, just to know, yeah. you, you know, we're laughing about this, but this actually happens already. Yeah. So like. if if you're living in, uh, if you're um, Ashkenazi Jew and you're living in New York, they have high instances of certain genetic conditions. So the children at, are tested and then when they're hitting 16, 17 and they're being partnered, the rabbi knows what they are carriers of and the parents say it's this person and this person or they a good match and the rabbi gives the yes or no and that is to say that they'd be high risk to have a baby affected by a condition or not so there are community is so small it's so small and they all marry within their community but they have a very high instance of some very very serious genetic conditions so in certain uh, groups that is happening already but as a general population idea it's (laughs) not out there just yet Yeah, and the majority of pregnancies are healthy, (laughs) you know, and the majority bring home beautiful babies and their lives are enriched by it. But for some people, when it goes wrong, they need the support and they need the answers or they at least need access to the technology that will bring them closer to an answer.
answer. We don't get an answer all the time because while we know there's 23,000 genes, we don't actually know what all of those genes do. So even with this testing, there will be groups of people where we still can't make a diagnosis and it'll be a few years down the line before we can. But as we're talking about technology and the amount and the science and, and what we can do with the science, I think the biggest problem we're facing in the field of prenatal testing with NIPs, with um, exome sequencing, it's what we can do and what we should do and what people are able for. And everybody is different. And that's why it's got to be so individualized. When people come to see me, I will meet them on numerous occasions and every appointment is an hour. And they need that. They make massive decisions. So there's a very close relationship um, going through a pregnancy and it's a very open environment. Everything is for discussion. And absolutely, we will be on the side of the couple at all times. And after the pregnancy, I think one of the saddest things, and I think we all probably know of people who've had a child with a disability or health problems and they're in and out of hospital and you speak to them and they say, well, we never had another baby because we had to invest so much time in this little one. And we were worried if it happened again, how could we do it for two? And I think that's one of the saddest things in life where people are afraid to extend their family because of the unknown. So the knowledge is power. And then knowing this was a sporadic thing, which is often what we find. It was a one-off spelling mistake on a gene that's devastating for this child. But there's a really low chance that it'll happen again. And then it's supporting people that if they want to extend and have another baby, that they feel comfortable and confident to do that. Yeah. It's all support, really, isn't it? It all boils down to support. Um, but Samantha, thank you so much for coming in to join us today. I feel like I've learned so much Me it's too. been like to wrap my mind head around opening. it yeah, yeah. i'm gonna be thinking about it for a while and I'm yeah. sure i think that everyone listening will be too um but if people want to find out a little bit more um or even kind of get in contact with you where could they find your information well, I'm based at the National Maternity Hospital, um, so people attending the National Maternity Hospital, if they need to see me, they, they can, no problem at all. Um, for people outside the National Maternity Hospital, I do hope in time this will become a national service, um, but I know that some patients from around the country are coming to see me privately, um, and some people who have travelled to the UK have been referred by the teams in the UK back to me here to access this testing. Um, but hopefully it'll be nationalised in time um, and I, I'm happy to talk to anybody who feels that they need help. Okay, well, well thank you so thank much you. again. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of A Little Birdie Told Me. If you enjoyed it, we have so many other amazing episodes for you to go back and listen to wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure to like us and hit subscribe. Don't forget to tune in again next time. Is your child restless this winter? If so... Then try using a soothing Calpol vapor plug and nightlight, an electrical plug-in device that emits lavender and chamomile vapors to soothe and comfort babies and children, helping to promote clear and easy breathing for up to eight hours. The nightlight emits a soft light to help comfort your child and guide you in the room so that you don't disturb your sleeping child. The Calpol night vapor plug and nightlight is suitable for children from three months. Calpol Vapor Plug and Nightlight is an electrical device and non-medicine. Always read the label.